if they've got a commercial in the fourth quarter, I, I've got to somehow get that viewer listener into the fourth quarter. In some ways, that was the most fun as a broadcaster. He continues to be mentioned in so many settings, as, as you know, and I think that's, that's a wonderful tribute to, to the work that he did. On the other hand, I don't know how long that'll last. That's Ralph Lawler, retired play-by-play announcer for the L.A. Clippers, and Casey Murrow, son of legendary broadcaster Edward R. Murrow. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. For my final show in 2019, I'm going to replay an interview I had with Ralph Lawler, play-by-play announcer for the L.A. Clippers for the last 40 years. Now, at the time of this interview, earlier this year, he was still broadcasting L.A. Clippers games, but had time for the interview because of the NBA All-Star break. Ralph Lawler is a fascinating man. He missed only three games in 40 years of broadcasting L.A. Clipper games, and he explains why. He also talks about the relationship with Steve Ballmer, the employees, and his own. And, of course, Steve Ballmer has some local interests. He is the L.A. Clippers owner as well. He also relished the fact that a good part of his career with the Clippers They were not only just uh, not very good, they were just plain bad. And he relished in that. He loved that because he said it made him a better announcer. His job was to keep fans into the game until the fourth quarter, no matter what the score. I also had an interview with Casey Murrow earlier this year. I asked him what it was like to be the son of Edward R. Murrow. What memories does he have of his father? What would Edward R. Murrow think of the state of news today? So that and much more. Back with my interview with Ralph Lawler in just a moment. Ralph Lawler mentioned Edward R. Murrow as an icon during my conversation with him. I thought I would start the interview with that. I didn't prompt him at all. It just happens to be a coincidence that I'm also replaying my interview with Casey Murrow, son of Edward R. Murrow, after this interview with Ralph. Edward R. Murrow at school, uh, there just is no news figure today that has the, the presence, the authority that he had the minute he sat down in a chair and started telling you about the news. And the same thing is true in baseball where you had Harry Carey, and here in L.A. we had Ben Scully, There's, there is not one other voice in baseball that in any way uh, is comparable to, to those and many other voices that existed in the 50s and 60s and before. And why do you think that happened? One of the big differences is cable television. It used to be you had a, a very limited... I was excited when I moved to California... Uh, there were seven TV stations. I was used to, in Illinois, we had two or three TV stations. There were seven. I thought, oh, my God. And of course, now there's 700 or whatever the number is with, with cable. So everything's gotten spread so thin. It really should not have impacted people that do what I've done for all these years, which is represent a team. Or if you're on CBS doing um, NFL football, uh, it shouldn't, that shouldn't be different, but it is fans of most any generation think of the L.A. Dodgers, the first 
personally think of is Vin Scully. It's not one of their great players, and they've had many, many. That's that's pretty special. Could you address, because it seems to me, it, listening to what you're saying, that it may be a major issue. So many of those guys, Scully, Cosell, you talked about, who got their, their start in radio when there was no picture, and you had to build a personality on what you sounded like over the airwaves. Is that a factor? <clears throat> yeah, that's a good point, Frank. The, the building blocks for a broadcaster, I think, are born in, in radio, I really do. Our television is like really simple. I mean, you've got the pictures there. You can almost not talk. And Scully was the best ever at understanding there's time just to shut up. When Kirk Gibson hit that uh, historic home run in 87, whatever it was, you know, limping around uh, the base paths, he paused for a minute and seven seconds without saying a word. Now, most broadcasters are scared to death you know, to let 10 seconds or 5 seconds go by without hearing their own voice. they they got to be a part of it. Uh, you know, that ball is out of here and just let the crowd go nuts. I get, I'm a, get tingly just hearing that crowd. And that's something I've, I've talked a bit about. His greatest thrill was hearing the crowd cheer. And he was not going to take that away from the audience. And that's very much a radio thing. Your passion's radio. Oh, absolutely. I read in regard to Vince Scully, during a broadcast, he would pretend he was sitting next to a fan in the stadium, hearing what they would want to hear, a conversation. Always, he said, tried to visualize himself talking to a fan in the stands. That's beautifully put, as only you know, Vin can put that kind of stuff. My dad used to tell me to try to broadcast to a, a blind person. If you can make them see what you're saying, you've, you've done a good job. And You've had an incredible run, and a couple highlights along the way that uh, you felt that kind of defined you as a broadcaster. I have no idea what that definition is. or I just love every single game. I broadcast 3,200 and some slipper games, and uh, for years before that, in Philadelphia and, and elsewhere, from, from high school games to junior college games to senior college games to American Basketball Association games to now NBA games, and I have loved every one. We've had seasons with the Clippers where we won 13 games and lost 69. And I loved every one of those 82 games. We've had games where we're down by 20 points in the first quarter. And what I've really loved is the challenge of trying to keep people listening or watching despite the fact that we've won 13 games this year or that we're down by 20 in the first quarter. I always felt a responsibility to uh, the team who's trying to sell tickets and sell... Uh, personalities of the of the players and to the sponsors that are spending money. If they've got a commercial in the fourth quarter, I, I've got to somehow get that viewer listener into the fourth quarter. In some ways, that was the most fun as a broadcaster, was like taking a challenge like that and saying, okay, there's still, there's still a reason to stay with this guy because he's going to say something interesting, informative, entertaining. He's going to tickle my funny bone or he's going to make me think something I hadn't thought about before with regards to sports or athletics. Pretty remarkable, because I wouldn't have uh, guessed that. So you never were jealous of a Chick Hearn oh, across God. the valley. I always thought that Chick had a much easier job. In almost every year of all the years that he broadcast that team, they had uh, a superstar MVP candidate from Jerry West and Elgin Baylor and Wilt Chamberlain and then you know Kareem and uh, Magic and Worthy and... Uh, eventually, you know, Shaq and Kobe, they, they always had like a, a transcendent star. When, when I worked with Walton, 
that was kind of transformative for me because before that, I think I was kind of caught in this trap that I'm talking about a lot of young broadcasters caught in, trying to just technically call a great X and O game and do everything, you know, by the book just correctly and get done. So, yeah, I was right on top of that one. Well, even if you aren't right on top of something, if you're entertaining and informative, that's what really works. And that's what, what I learned from, from Bill. He never cared at all who won or lost the games. He was down in San Diego and uh, doing network games and just coming in and doing 35 of these games a year. He care less who won or lost the game, but he did care about doing a really good job. He was really professional and really prepared and really bizarre and full of hyperbole. We, we learned how to work together, but most of all it taught me this is a game, this is not real serious business. Let's have fun. If we're having fun, they're probably having fun. If we're having fun, they're apt to not want to turn off television set or change channels, which is so easy to do. How about you stepping away? What, what do you feel about that? Mixed feelings, Paul. I mean, I, uh, you do anything for 40 years, it's kind of hard to imagine not doing it next year. It's going to be very interesting what it's like next September when we're used to gearing up to coming back to L.A. from, from Oregon and uh, getting the plane and flying to Hawaii for training camp and then coming back and bam, 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 you're playing preseason games and then boom, the season starts. Or seeing that schedule in August and determining where you're going to be for the next six months, you've got your life pretty well planned out for you. Not having that structure is going to be uh, a challenge to us, I think, to fill the voids. And I've really tried not to think about it too much this year because I want to enjoy this season. I want to enjoy what I've enjoyed all these previous 40 years. A part of me is looking forward to it. A part of me is going scared to death. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Because you've only missed a, what, four or five games in your entire career? Did I, I read I, that right? I, I think it's three. I think oh. we tried to come up with... Uh, one of those was a suspended game because of something my partner said on television. They suspended us for a game. Can you tell, share that? What happened? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were playing Memphis, and they had a uh, player named Hadadi who was from... Iran, as is typical uh, of my style. If I'm from Bradley University, and if a player from Bradley would kind of make a shot, I'd say those Bradley Braves can really shoot. And so Hadadi comes in, and uh, Mike, my partner, said Iran. And so I said Iran. It should be Iran, but I've heard the president and CNN commentators say Iran as well. They pass the ball to Hadadi, and he makes a little backdoor bounce pass to a guy that drives and scores. And I says, those guys from Iran can really pass the ball. There was an Iranian-American attorney in town who was offended by that, uh, the use of Iran rather than Iran. And uh, and then Mike said something about how he looked like Borat or something. this, this guy sends a scathing email to the LA Times, the, the Daily News, Fox Sports, and the Clippers. And uh, so the next day I get a, I get a call to come in and, and did, and they said, we're suspending you for a game. But that, and then we got caught in traffic once living out here in the desert in La Quinta, and uh, uh, 
Uh, there was a, a big semi-tractor trailer, got crossways on the freeway. The freeway was closed. We went six miles in six hours. Seattle, that's where I'm from, the Seattle Supersonics. We still haven't gotten over losing our Sonics. Uh, what do you think about that? One fell swoop. We lost Vancouver to Memphis, and we lost Seattle to Oklahoma City. I'd say we got screwed in both cases. Must know Kevin Calabro, I would assume. Kevin is one of the one of the voices that the, the sporting world needs. I mean, he's just so good, and he's got that presence. He just jumps out of the radio or the TV. Well, what I felt really proud of him as a Seattleite is that he wouldn't go to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, uh, and that's, you don't see that all the time, but yeah. he had the integrity to say, this team goes, I'm not going. Yeah. How's Steve Ballmer doing as an NBA owner? What an extraordinary man he is. You know, great story of his success, but as unspoiled by success as I've ever met, and he's, he's the most successful person I've ever met, I would guess. There's a, a, a gal named Mecco, who's the security person at this checkpoint uh, each night, and we walk up, and she goes, Hey, Steve, how you doing? He says, Hey, Mecco, what's up? That's just who he is. Uh, his, his first meeting with, uh, with the staff, he says, I'm going to give you two email addresses. One, you can share with public and fans if they want to reach me. But if you want to reach me yourself, the one that I will really respond to quickly, let me give you my private email. And so there's 150 people in a room, whatever, whatever the staff is, everybody's writing down uh, the owner's uh, email address. And if you email him, uh, he'll be back to you just you know, like that. And I've, I've got a cell phone uh, number in my, in my phone. It's it just... Remarkable. All that said, that's just the nice human side. He's, he's a really good guy. He's a demanding taskmaster, and he wants excellence from every corner of the operation. He will, in the next five years, I'll bet you win at least two championships. My only rap on Steve Ballmer is this. He doesn't have enough energy. <laughs> well, I'll work on him with that. As we talk at the top of the show, Edward R. Murrow is an iconic person when it comes to broadcasting. His list is a mile long. And Edward R. Murrow was a student at Washington State College, then it was the college, in 1930. That's when he graduated. And his son, Casey Murrow himself, is a very successful individual in his own right. He is the director of Synergy Learning, a nonprofit organization specializing in science and math programs for schools and teachers. So how about your father's legacy as you get away from it more and more? Do you have any thoughts in terms of what type of journalist, what type of person he is, and how revered he still is? And um, what, are your, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's astonishing that he is still revered in the way that he has been, not just here at WSU, but elsewhere as well. And he continues to be mentioned in so many settings, as, as you know. And I think that's, that's a wonderful tribute to, to the work that he did. On the other hand, I don't know how long that'll last. I mean, given, uh, given changes in, in both technology and in journalism, I hope his name still uh, rings a bell for a lot of people. What would he think if he were here today about what has happened to the news? 
I think he would be fascinated with some of the technological advances that we've all been through. I think he would be, at the same time, somewhat horrified by the uh, ability of journalism in various forms to uh, to simply show up in uh, in people's inboxes, um, whether that's email or or some other device. But I I really have a hard time imagining what he would uh, think of the the world in general. And just just the way the world is evolving right yes, now. Yes, exactly. Have it. Exactly. Because he obviously it was not an easy time when he was in, a journalist. I mean, no. in you know in England and things like that. And he saw a lot of horrible things during the time. He seemed to have the ability to really summarize what was going on at that moment, which I think we're lacking right now. I think he did. He he loved storytelling, and I think some of that he actually learned at. Uh, WSU and or Washington State College as it was at the time and in other settings so his storytelling skills I think were were super important to uh, to his success do you think uh, he would like what he's seen today and let's say the growth of the news stations and all of the information that's out there now I wonder if he would. I, I suppose he would be impressed by, by some of it. On the other hand, uh, maybe uh, maybe he would be horrified. Who knows? Who knows? Just don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Well, how about you now? When you were growing up, how did you decide to end up doing what you, in the career that you chose and where you live, which is uh, in Vermont, correct? It's, that's true. And I've worked mostly in education. I've been a classroom teacher. I've been a principal. I've been a, a number of different... I've worked for the University of Vermont for quite a while. And all that has been very satisfying work for me personally. How does that fit in with my parents? Well, both my parents, I think, were, were very committed to education in a variety of ways. My mother was a long-term supporter of Mount Holyoke College, uh, where she attended, and my dad was certainly a supporter of Washington State College, as it was then, and, uh, and its many programs. So I really felt that I was, in a sense, following in a realm of their great interest uh, in education, not uh, not specifically in, in journalism. I also got some advice from my father, who didn't give me a lot of advice, <clears throat> but he he suggested that following in his footsteps in journalism with my last name would be a little bit of a problem, that, that I'd always be compared to and um, and be uh, perhaps worried about measuring up, but I that that turned out not to be what happened. Were you ever thinking about going in that direction, or or not? I worked for ABC Television News one summer in their in their network operation in New York, and had a lot of fun doing that. Of course, but it was also somewhat obvious that they were using me to further their own interests, and that I didn't think was a good idea. Well, what's the uh, let's say the positives of being the son of Edward R. Murrow versus the burdens? Let's start with what what is right. the pluses? Well, the pluses were tremendous because he was a wonderful dad and and actually spent a lot of time with me. So his his sometimes somber attitude uh, that that people refer to really was not part of my experience. He was a he was a very engaging person who uh, uh, seemed to enjoy as far as I could tell, being around me, and uh, we went hunting and fishing and camping and uh, ran the Rogue River at one point and uh, so on. So we, there, were, there were a lot of things that, that made him uh, a very positive influence on me growing up. What would be some of the burdens then? Well, you know, I, I'm not so sure that there are a whole lot of burdens because I, I'm certainly proud of what 
what he did and uh, of things like the Murrow College here at WSU. I think that one aspect of, uh, if we think in terms of burdens, and one aspect that I think is is worth considering is that he died in 1965, so that's a long time ago. And um, uh, I think I've largely come to terms with uh, with being his kid um, over that period of time. He was obviously known for many things, but probably the two biggest things that come to mind is this is London, the bombing in London, and also his interview with Joe McCarthy, which really mm-hmm. kind of opened up with those uh, further investigations. And essentially, uh, I just have to say the first peg in bringing Joe McCarthy down. Mm-hmm. That's what we think of when we think of Edward R. Murrow. What do you think he was most proud of? I think he was very proud of, uh, of his wartime reporting, most definitely, and you pointed to that. He was also proud of the McCarthy work, but, but I think also very proud of um, the, that was done in a program called See It Now. And he, he was extremely proud of the reporting, sort of long-form journalism that they did um, in one-point hour-long broadcasts and uh, television broadcasts, and then later uh, half-hour. So they were able to cover stories in quite a lot of depth, and that was the first time that it happened in, in television broadcasting. So he had opportunities to work in, uh, in radio and television at breakthrough moments that were, uh, were quite astonishing, really. And he was pretty aware of that. I remember that speech he gave about television news, and mm-hmm. it was 1956 or something. I think really, it was. Uh, identifying and articulating the great part of this new medium at the time and what we should be a little more than worried about, almost terrified. He, he kind of laid that out. I think he did, and with, uh, with a lot of emphasis. That was a speech in Chicago, and it was, uh, it was certainly a, an upsetting speech to uh, uh, the media executives who were there. Perhaps that was good. Yeah, good thing. <laughs> Make him feel uncomfortable, and that's what you got to do. When he <clears throat> left uh, CBS and went on to work, I think, for the Kennedy administration. He did, yeah. It wasn't an easy uh, exit for him from the media. It, it just didn't seem like it was a great parting. No, I think it wasn't a great parting, and I think he felt that uh, CBS would was not going to be totally disappointed if he left. And uh, however, he was very proud to, to serve the Kennedy administration, and, and felt that uh, that people ought to serve in that kind of setting if they were asked. That was a very important element to him. His departure, I think, from uh, from CBS was. On, on the one hand, difficult for him, but uh, in other ways, um, a matter of pride of, uh, of moving forward in, uh, in some ways. He certainly kept a, a hand in. He was involved in some very early discussions about um, the development of public radio uh, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and, uh, and so on, and that was, uh, that was important to him as well. He probably would have jumped into that had he lived. I, I think imagine. he might have, yeah. I think he might have. I went to the Murrow Symposium for the first time, just had graduated from here maybe four years before. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting in Bryan Auditorium, and uh, we had all these luminaries there. Fred Friendly was mm-hmm. there, um, Charles Keralt came in, and um, I'm sitting next to a woman, and I introduced myself. And I said, uh, My name is Paul Casey, and who are you? And this is Murrow. <laughs> and I went, Oh my gosh. And it was a that was pretty stunning to have that occur because mm-hmm. I didn't expect it. I had dinner and I was around a table with Charles Keralt was there and boy, it's really nice of you to come here. And he said, I wouldn't be here if Mrs. Murrow called. 
Mrs. Murrow called, you came. <laughs> That's great. Yes. That's, that was probably true, and uh, uh, I think she, she brought a number of people here um, and to other kinds of events um, that she felt were important and, uh, uh, and significant. My thanks to Casey Murrow for spending time with me on Voices of Experience today. I can only hope that one day that we'll be in a position as a country to return to the news as it was defined by Edward R. Murrow. Embarrassed to say that I slept through Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. I was in basic training in Blackman Air Force Base in Texas, and exhausted. And I thought, if he does it once, somebody else can do it the second time, and I needed the rest. Therefore, even though there was a TV available in another barracks, I chose sleep over Neil. And to this day, I regret it, but I felt rested at the time. In July, I celebrated 50 years of landing on the moon. And that was an observation from my cousin, Tom Casey, on what that moment meant to him. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to L.A. Clippers basketball announcer, Ralph Lawler, and to Casey Murrow, son of Edward R. Murrow. Quote of the new year. Last year's words belong to last year's language. And next year's words await another voice. And to make an end is to make a beginning. That's T.S. Eliot. Now, Voices of Experience, we just basically talk to people with experience in their own fields, public affairs, travel, fitness, education, with also an emphasis on entrepreneurship. Very little theory in this show. I just like to talk with people who are experienced in what they do. I also put together what I call the self-employment quiz. There are 20 questions on this quiz, and the higher you score the higher your prospects for success. You can visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take the quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. A reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and again Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. You can also listen to all the shows by Googling KKNW, click on the podcasts, locate Voices of Experience, and you are there. Hopefully the Seahawks will bounce back with a win over the Philadelphia Eagles next Sunday during the first round of the playoffs. One thing I've learned about the Seahawks, particularly under Pete Carroll, never count them out. 2020 is just hours away, and I wish everyone with an earshot a very, very happy New Year's.